0: Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. Good afternoon. Uh, Thank you for joining us. My name is Philip Munoz. I'm the director of Notre Dame's Program in Constitutional Studies, and it's my pleasure uh, to welcome you to today's debate on the Electoral College. Uh, before we begin, let me introduce our co-sponsor for this event, the James Madison Montpelier Foundation. Uh, I've worked with Montpelier for many years and done uh, teaching for them and spoken at Montpelier. It's a wonderful national resource. Uh, very pleased that they're co-sponsoring today's event. And I invited um, their vice president and chief curator uh, at the foundation, Elizabeth Chu, uh, just to say a few words of, uh, about Montpelier. Elizabeth?
1: Thank you very much, Phil. Um, I'm Elizabeth Chu, and I'd like to offer a few words of greeting from James Madison's Montpelier and our Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution, located in beautiful, rural Orange, Virginia. James Madison knew that the United States of America's revolutionary commitment to a government by the people and for the people depended on a well-constructed written foundation. The U.S. Constitution is that foundational document. While the Constitution did not end debate on core governance issues, having a written document outlining the basic rules and tenets of our society provides a solid foundation that we can return to as the starting point for all of our debates. At Montpelier, the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution hosts events and programs that strive to help people from all walks of life gain a better understanding of the document that still serves as the foundation of our nation. The question of how the president should be elected was a hotly contested issue at the Philadelphia Convention in 1787. The delegates considered numerous methods before ultimately deciding on the Electoral College. Electoral College in its original form failed almost immediately to provide a satisfactory method for choosing a president. The 12th Amendment memorializes the first time that the country felt impelled to fix the presidential selection process. Since that time, hundreds of amendments have been proposed, which were designed to repair or eliminate the Electoral College. We look forward to today's debate about this ongoing issue. We're proud to co-sponsor today's program with the Potenziani Program in Constitutional Studies and the Tocqueville Program for Inquiry into Religion and Public Life at Notre Dame. We hope today's program will encourage informed debate among viewers and continuous improvements to our nation. Thanks for the opportunity to co-sponsor today's program.
0: Thanks to Elizabeth and uh, thanks for Montpelier for co-sponsoring our debate today. Uh, Let me just go over uh, the format. Um, We're going to do a Lincoln Douglas style uh, event. Uh, So Mr. Wegman will speak first for about 15 minutes and then Mr. England will have a response, uh, 20 minutes and approximately, and then we'll give Mr. Wegman a few minutes to respond. I mean, of course the original Lincoln Douglas debates were uh, Uh, one hour, 90 minutes, and 30 minutes. So we're taking it easy on these gentlemen uh, today. Uh, We have a tradition here at the program, which is we have a student uh, do the formal introductions for our speakers. So I'm gonna call to uh, the screen, Alex Badsten. Alex is a junior, right, a junior. She's here in my constitutional law class, which the students in the background are from my con law class. Uh, She's from Louisiana, and she'll introduce our speakers.
2: All right. Hi, good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today for this constitutional studies debate on the Electoral College. First, we have Mr. Jesse Wegman, who will be arguing against the Electoral College. Jesse Wegman is a member of the New York Times editorial board, where he has written about the Supreme Court and legal affairs since 2013. He graduated from New York University School of Law in 2005. Mr. Wegman is a widely published news and editorial writer, but has also authored a book recently published in 2020 by St. Martin's Press titled, Let the People Pick the President, The Case for Abolishing the Electoral College. Next, we have Mr. Trent England, who will be arguing in favor of keeping the Electoral College. Mr. England serves as Executive Vice President and the David and Ann Brown Distinguished Fellow at the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs. He is the founding director of Save Our States, a group dedicated to defending the Electoral College from the National Popular Vote campaign, which would nullify the Electoral College without a constitutional amendment. Mr. England earned his law degree from the George Mason University School of Law and a Bachelor of Arts in Government from Claremont. Kenna College. Please join me in welcoming our two speakers today.
3: Hi, everyone, and thank you so much. Thanks to Notre Dame and to the Constitutional Studies Program and also the Robert H. Smith Center for hosting this debate. I do recognize that um, uh, the Lincoln-Douglas debates uh, featured slightly longer presentations, but in an age of Twitter, I feel extremely lucky to have as long as 10 or 12 minutes actually to make a case. I'm sure Trent feels the same way. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Twice in the past 20 years, one presidential candidate has earned fewer votes than his opponent and yet won the White House. It nearly happened again this year, a switch of only about 50,000 votes in three pivotal states. That's fewer people than could fill the stadium right next to you, would have given Donald Trump a second term, even though his opponent, Joe Biden, won more than 7 million more votes than he did nationwide. This year, we also saw just how vulnerable the current system is to being manipulated for political gain, as the former president and his supporters sought to use the Electoral College's mechanisms to overturn the result in multiple states where he lost. Obviously, the way we choose the nation's leader has triggered a lot of heated debate for a long time. As Elizabeth said, it was uh, perhaps the most uh, contentious issue at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Uh, And many of us might today also assume that this debate is hopelessly partisan and polarized. After all, both times the Electoral College has diverged from the popular vote in this century, the Republican candidate has benefited and the Democrat has suffered. But that would be wrong. Until 2000, the Electoral College had haters from across the political spectrum, Democrats, Republicans, liberals, conservatives. At one point or another, everyone has understood the unfairness and unrepresentativeness of our system for choosing the president. That system was set up in the last frenzied days of the convention in 1787. The founding fathers later admitted it was not their best moment. They were exhausted, they were hot, irritable, and they were anxious to get the Constitution finished and sent out to the states for ratification. Almost immediately, as Elizabeth said, the system that they devised stopped working as they thought that it would. The first attempt to change it came within a decade. The first call to abolish it came a few years after that. In all, there have been about 800 attempts to amend or abolish the Electoral College throughout American history. That's far more than for any other single provision of the Constitution. And it shows that people have been unhappy with this system for a very long time. Of all of those attempts, one attempt got closer than any other. And it began right there in your backyard with the late 1960s crusade by Indiana Senator Birch Bayh. Now, that time was a time of great social and political upheaval that rivaled the ones of our current moment. And Senator Bayh was at the center of it all, authoring two constitutional amendments, the 25th and 26th. He has the distinction of being the only American other than James Madison to author more than one amendment to the constitution. What I wanna talk about for just a few minutes today is the one that got away. That would be Bayh's third amendment, which would have abolished the electoral college and replaced it with a popular vote. Now, Birch as anyone who knew him could tell you, was not a radical reformer. He was a centrist Democrat known for working for t- toward bipartisan solutions to big problems. And he was a believer in the electoral college at first, but then he started researching the issue, holding hearings, hearing from witnesses, experts, uh, reading archival reports, and he realized he had it wrong. In May of 1966, Bai gave a speech on the floor of the Senate announcing he'd changed his mind and supported a popular vote for president. I'm going to just read you a couple of passages from this speech. He said, some may say this proposal is too new, too radical a break with tradition. In all honesty, I was among that number only a few short months ago. But I came to the conclusion that this idea was not truly a break with tradition at all. It was, in fact a logical, realistic, and proper continuation of this nation's tradition and history, a tradition of continuous expansion of the franchise and equality in voting. By then ticked off the major moments in that expansion. First, letting poorer white men vote, then Black men after the Civil War, then letting people vote directly for their senators, then women Half the adult population won the vote in 1920, then 18-year-olds half a century later. In fact, Bai said, we have only one election remaining wherein some votes are not equal to others and wherein millions of votes do not count in the final result. And that is in the election of the most powerful political officer in the world, the president of the United States. Now on the same day Bai gave that speech, Gallup released its first ever national poll on a direct popular vote. 63% of Americans said they favored dumping the Electoral College for a popular vote. Within two years, public support for the popular vote had risen to 80%, 80% of Americans. It had support from across the political spectrum, the Chamber of Commerce, organized labor, from the American Bar Association to the League of Women Voters. And then came the election of 1968, when George Wallace, the former Alabama governor and staunch segregationist, ran a third party campaign that netted 46 electoral votes all throughout the Deep South. And he came very close to deadlocking the election, throwing it into the House of Representatives. That would have been a nightmare. The Constitution provides that if no candidate wins a majority of electoral votes, the House decides the winner with each state getting a single vote. That means California with 40 million residents would have the same say in choosing the president as Wyoming with around 600,000. Wallace's attempt to manipulate the Electoral College that year failed, but he came close enough that Americans everywhere were horrified at the bizarre inequitable system they had for choosing the president. In September 1969, the House voted overwhelmingly to abolish the Electoral College and replace it with a direct popular vote. Dozens of states were ready to ratify it. Even President Richard Nixon got on board. All signs pointed to a successful amendment and a radical change in the way Americans choose their presidents. So why did it fail? It was a filibuster in the Senate led by three Southern segregationists. These men, who had recently tried to filibuster the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts, were well aware that the Electoral College had always benefited them. Throughout the South, Black voters were disenfranchised by restrictive registration and voting laws, and even those who could vote were rendered invisible. A popular vote would make their voices equal and their votes matter. But here's the interesting part. The segregationists were joined by unexpected allies, black political leaders and ethnic minorities in big northern cities like New York City. Why? Because at the time, New York was the nation's biggest and most important swing state, and racial and ethnic minorities in the big cities decided how it swung. These voters, like the southern whites, knew that the Electoral College gave them disproportionate power in choosing the president. They didn't want to give up that extra power any more than the Southerners did. In both cases, the source of that extra power is what we call the winner-take-all rule. This is the rule that all but two states use today to award their electoral votes. It says that the candidate who wins the most votes in a state gets all of that state's electors. doesn't matter how close the popular vote is, doesn't matter how many votes either side wins, the the person who gets the most votes gets 100% of the electors. This is the rule that distorts the system that we have today more than anything else. It's a rule that erases tens of millions of Americans' votes simply because of where they happen to live. It creates an artificial image of red and blue states as though there are no Republicans in California or no Democrats in Texas. And it makes the votes of more than 100 million Americans every four years irrelevant because they don't live in states that truly matter, those swing states where candidates of both parties spend almost all their time, money, and attention trying to push a few votes to their side in order to win a whole pot of electors. In the process, those candidates ignore the 40 to 45 safe states, and that means the interests of all, nearly all Americans. The state winner-take-all rule is the reason the Electoral College as it functions today violates our two most basic principles, political equality, what we call one person, one vote, and majority rule. In short, all votes should be equal and the person who gets the most should win. As Birch Bayh said, that's how we run every other election in the country. What most people don't realize is that the state winner take all rules exist nowhere in the constitution. The framers never mentioned it. It exists solely because of state laws And when the framers saw it start to get used, they were extremely troubled. In 1823, more than 30 years after the Constitution was ratified, James Madison proposed an amendment to ban its use. He failed. But the proposition under debate today today is, should the electoral college be abolished? My answer is yes, for all the reasons I'm explaining here. But I'm also aware of political reality and I know a constitutional amendment is even more unlikely to pass today than it was in 1969 when Birch Bayh nearly made it happen. Still, there are other ways to get us to a popular vote and to force candidates and presidents to pay attention to all Americans equally and treat the whole country as one big battleground. The one I'll just mention here briefly is a movement among the states to agree to change that winner take all rule. Rather than give their electors to the person who wins the most votes in their state, they commit to award their electors to the person who wins the most votes in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. When states representing a majority of electoral votes join in this agreement, the person who gets the most votes automatically becomes the president. That solves the swing state problem and makes all of us count equally, no matter where we live or whom we vote for. That's how a representative democracy should work. Many of the framers understood it. Birch Bayh understood it. Even Donald Trump understood it back on election night, 2012, when he called the electoral college a disaster for democracy. Why did he call it that? Because he thought his candidate, Mitt Romney, was going to win the popular vote and lose the presidency to Barack Obama. Trump was wrong about the outcome, but he was right about the Electoral College. As long as it continues to function as it does today, losers can win, majority rule is upended, and tens of millions of Americans won't matter to the president, whether Republican or Democratic. That is a disaster. Thank you.
4: Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's, a, it's a real privilege to be here and a pleasure to, to be here with, with Jesse uh, Wegman, who has written very eloquently on this topic um, in his book and, and other places. And uh, uh, thanks to all of you for, for being here virtually uh, at, at your schools or wherever you are. Uh, I, I want to do two things. I, I want to talk about the Electoral College uh, in, a, in a general way for a few minutes and then turn to some of Jesse's uh, particular criticisms of the system, uh, and, and then last talk, just a little bit about this national popular vote movement, because I think that whatever you think about the Electoral College, this effort to subvert it through an interstate compact is particularly dangerous to just the integrity uh, of, of our electoral process and, and would throw us into a constitutional crisis. But let's, let's start at the beginning. Uh, and actually step out of our American context for a moment, which I think is helpful. You know, we all have dogs in various fights in American politics. Uh, and so I, I like to, to put the question to folks when, when we're talking about the Electoral College, why do other countries do it this way? Um, which I find sometimes surprises people because uh, you know every once in a while I, I hear people say, we're the only country in the world that does it this way. Well, it turns out that that's not true. And not only is that not true, but other countries have, uh, to to some degree, even copied our system, um, obviously believing that our electoral college system is a success. And there are two examples of that that come from the middle of the 20th century. India, when it gained independence from the British Empire in 1950, and West Germany after World War II. Both of these countries have an electoral college type system uh, it's not the same as ours. Frankly, it's a lot more complicated, but it serves the same purpose. And I think it's helpful to, to think about um, what is that purpose? Why would other countries do this? Well, in Germany, like the United States, there's a there's a strong history of federalism, of uh, of, of uh, subsidiarity, of what we would call you know state powers or state sovereignty. Right? They have distinct, regions like Bavaria, right? They have, they have distinct regions that have identities, that have local governments, that have a lot of power. And so using an electoral college type system, it, you know, for one thing, just recognizes that fact. Uh, but it also ensures that one region of, of Germany doesn't control all of their national politics all of the time or most of the time, leaving other regions, particularly less populous regions, out of, uh, of national politics, or at least uh, out of deciding who becomes chancellor. And this is even more obvious in India. Uh, if you're familiar with India, it's probably the most diverse country uh, in, in the world. It is the largest democracy in the world, and we call it a democracy, despite the fact that they don't use a national popular vote there when, they, uh, when they're electing their top executive. They use a distributed system like we do. Um, India has Uh, different religious groups that sometimes are at odds. It has different linguistic groups, um, larger linguistic groups that then break down into, I mean, hundreds of of smaller uh, linguistic dialects, right? India is a a profoundly diverse nation. and When they set out to create a democratic system, they recognized, as many other countries have, that if you have a majority of the population that's Hindu, that's at odds with a minority of the population that is Muslim, if you create a political system where the part of the population that is in the minority never really has an opportunity to engage in a certain important part of, of the political system, that politically, political entropy is likely to prevail, right? That society is likely eventually to tear itself apart because the minority group is going to say, we don't have anything at stake here. And, and the majority group may well become, uh, uh, be, you know, use their power to abuse the minority. Uh, Jesse said that our two most important political principles, if I have this right, are political equality and majority rule. And uh, I, I don't think that's right. Um, I think that the Bill of Rights speaks to the fact that that's not right. And certainly in, in, uh, in India, in Germany, um, in other countries that have this similar sort of system, right? These are values, right? In, we all consider India a democracy. We consider the United States to be a democracy, right? We value political equality, we value majority rule, but we also value civil rights, which include minority rights. We value political stability which is necessary for maintaining political equality. If you don't have enough stability, a political system will break down and you will lose political equality, right? So there are are a lot of values in addition to just majority rule. Uh, So what about about other countries? Um, Places like Great Britain, Canada, Australia, Spain that use parliamentary systems. Right. They're doing something similar to what we do through the Electoral College. They you now there's always nuances when you get into parliamentary systems. But for the most part, they have geographic districts that elect a member of parliament and the parliament elects the prime minister. Right. That's the, the basic outline of a parliamentary system. They're not all the same same, obviously, but uh, uh, this is like our Electoral College system. Right. It's a two-step democratic process. It is a democratic process that produces the prime minister, but it's a two-step democratic process that has a, a basic requirement of, uh, that, that you can't rule Britain just from London right, that you can't rule Canada just from a couple cities in the East, right? Uh, there's, there, there is a, a certain balance that's required. And in these other countries, we do sometimes see that the winning candidate for prime minister, the party that, that forms a coalition, uh, is not the party that got the most votes. It happened in Canada's last election when the Conservative Party received the most popular votes, but the Liberal Party uh, won a majority in Parliament because it's a districted system. In any districted system, of elections, that can happen, right? Majority rule is not our top, uh, it's not our top principle, it's not our top priority. It's something that we value, but if we allow it to, uh, uh, to overcome everything else and we don't have civil rights, we don't care about political stability, all these things that, that we actually know that we value. Uh, here's, here's another example, and we'll, we'll dig into the, the Electoral College more specifically. Think about a treaty. Uh, think about when the United States is negotiating a treaty with China. Now, we could say, look, majority rule, we'll have uh, we, we'll come up with a treaty and then we'll just have all the Chinese and all the uh, all the US uh, citizens vote on the treaty. And if a majority want the treaty, then the treaty will take effect. And, and uh, you know, and if not, not. Right. Um, well, you know, I, I don't think any American would uh, accept a system like that because every American could vote no uh, and be outvoted by every person and now of course china doesn't allow all their all their citizens to vote but uh, uh, but the example is obvious right we don't we don't negotiate treaties that way um, because we understand that it matters that a majority of americans support the idea and it matters that it, you know matters to us more than it matters to the chinese authorities that mat- that 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 uh, that treaty we're negotiating with china actually serves their interests as well right uh, building political consensus in different geographical areas, right, is sometimes very common sense. And I think in the case of the Electoral College, uh, that, that actually holds true. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what the Electoral College does specifically in the United States. I mean, it, it has this effect, right? It creates a certain requirement for geographical balance. And people say, oh, you know, the safe states don't matter. Well, that's hogwash. Right. You can't be a legitimate national political party or a legitimate national political candidate without having a large base of support. And to the extent that that large base of support is not perfectly evenly distributed around the country, you're going to have some some people in some states that form majorities that already like you. Um, Maybe because you're a Republican, maybe because you're a particular candidate, uh, maybe because you're a Democrat. Right. But uh, uh, that matters. That's the base of your political support. Right, and as a campaign goes on, obviously um, candidates work toward voters who are undecided. They work toward the districts, the places that are undecided. This happens when uh, uh, when congressional campaign committees. Are looking at uh, at how they're going to spend their resources, trying to build a majority in the U.S. House of Representatives or in the United States Senate. Right. Um, obviously, you've got to make sure that you have a large base of of states where you're likely to win. And then you, as the campaign goes on, you work toward focusing on those areas that are more marginal, that are more politically divided. There's there's nothing unique to the Electoral College about that kind of political strategy. Every state legislature, right? That is a A political party's strategy for gaining or maintaining control of a particular legislative body. Uh, The Electoral College also keeps states in charge of elections. Um, It contains election problems within individual state boundaries. So if something happens in Florida, it's at least contained in Florida. Right? If something happens in Arizona, if there's contentions uh, about an election, it's at least contained there. Right, It's isolated like the watertight compartments on an ocean liner. Uh, you know, Ocean liners have these watertight compartments. So if you hit an iceberg, it floods one compartment, but it doesn't sink the whole ship. This is how our elections work. We, we distribute the power across the country. Uh, it also helps to make our elections more secure. I was at a hearing in Colorado a few years ago and the elections director there uh, was testifying about uh, election integrity in Colorado. And she said, look, because we empower the counties, the lists are kept at the county level. The counties are making a lot of the decisions, right? The power is distributed out. Um, she felt very secure in the way that Colorado runs their elections, right? And this is true at the, at the federal level as well. Because we push this power down to the states, if we have a problem it's contained in an individual state, and therefore the system is less vulnerable than it would be if everything was run out of Washington DC. And frankly, it also also makes the system a little bit easier to to trust um, in that presidents or presidential appointees have almost no power over presidential elections. I mean, look at this last election, right? The president of the United States was making statements to state officials to stop counting or to, to, do, you know, to do this or to do that, that was in his benefit. And none of those state officials, as far as I'm aware, not a single one of those state officials to whom those commands were, were directed um, actually actually did what the president wanted that person to do, right? That, that's amazing, right? Uh, that, that is because we have a system of states, a system of decentralized power um, in the electoral college. What, what else does it, does it do? Uh, Jesse mentioned, I, I was glad that he, uh, uh, he, he sort of uh, gave me an easier job because he, uh, he told some of these stories from history that are, that are important to understand. And he mentioned that the last time there was this effort to amend the Constitution to get rid of the Electoral College, uh, that there were a number of civil rights organizations and civil rights groups that opposed it. Um, and that went, uh, went before the United States Senate Judiciary Committee and testified about the importance of the Electoral College. Right. Why did they do that? Um, They did that. And Jesse's absolutely, absolutely correct on this. They did that because um, they saw it as being in their benefit politically because they could be, you know, their their particular constituency, whatever it was, might be the the constituency that would swing a particular state. New York was the obvious one, but there were other states as well where, you know, at that time, uh, the 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 black vote might be essential to the Democratic Party um, winning a state. Right? Today, you see Republicans reaching out to Hispanic voters to make sure that they can win in Florida and Texas right? because of the electoral college. Uh, and that I think is the irony of our distributed system for electing the president of the United States, our two-step democratic process, is that by pushing the power down into the states, by requiring uh, support Across the country, right, in a, in a larger number of, of geographic areas than would otherwise be the case, we actually make our politics more national and more unified, right? Both political parties are courting the votes of all sorts of minority groups, right? Because any one of those minority groups might swing uh, one of the states that's going to be important in a particular election. And nobody knows quite, quite what that's going to look like, um, even on election day. Um, as it as it tends to turn out, right? The Electoral College makes our politics more inclusive um, than it would otherwise be. Um, finally, about the the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact with Jesse, which Jesse mentioned, um, this is an effort to effectively abolish the Electoral College without amending the Constitution it's especially problematic because, you know, you think about a, a national popular vote system like France has, you know, France, Russia, Iran, there are some countries that use a, uh, you know, there's some large countries that use a national popular vote. Um, you know, in a country like France, they at least have a two-step election. And typically, when people have proposed constitutional amendments to abolish the Electoral College, there's some sort of uh, provision to make sure that you don't have a very small plurality winner. The National Popular Vote Compact has n- has no provision like that at all. Um, you could have a situation where five or six or, or ten or twelve candidates are running, and the winner might be someone who achieved you know 23 percent, um, which by the way is what Emmanuel Macron in the first round of the last French election received. He, he got twenty three percent. Marine Le Pen got twenty one percent. They went to the to the final uh, you know two person election and uh, Macron obviously won, uh, 600,000 French voters, however, in that election cast blank ballots in protest because they regarded that direct democratic majority rule system as being undemocratic because they were left with a choice between two candidates supported by 44% of the electorate. So even if you have a runoff, you can still wind up with results that, that are much less democratic than they, than they appear if you scratch the surface. Uh, but the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact has no provision. Um, to make sure that you have a majority winner or even a large plurality winner. It also, because it doesn't change the Constitution, it leaves most of the power over elections at the state level, which is a good thing unless you're trying to aggregate all of the state vote totals. The way national popular vote works, each state in the compact attempts to aggregate the vote totals from all of the other states, uh, despite the fact that states have all sorts of different rules and processes for how they run their elections. Um, I think it's, it's a recipe for, for disaster. Uh, I, I think it, it may be a smart tactic for opponents of the Electoral College to advance their cause, uh, but I think as, as public policy, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact would be a disaster uh, for our country, much worse than, than making some change at the constitutional level. Um, with, with that, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to all of your questions and to, to hearing what Jesse has to say. I think in, in his last... Uh, his last few minutes here. But uh, just thank you again to the organizers of all of this and, and to all the students who are here.
3: Hi, uh, I think I have a, a few minutes to respond. Uh, is, that, is that correct? Um, OK, so let me address um, what Trent just said on uh, first on theory and then on practice. Um, I, I think, for, first of all, it's interesting that he spent a lot of time talking about uh, other countries. I, I, you know, I, I think we could talk about the practice in other countries. There, there's, there's a lot of it is apples to oranges, as as, as he noted. Parliamentary systems are just uh, fundamentally different uh, than the presidential system that we have here in the United States, but. I think we need to focus on the United States because we, we invented the Electoral College and we're really the only um, modern democracy that uses this precise system. And, and I, I still stand by all my criticisms of it. On the, on the, on the theoretical issue, this, this question of majority rule, you know, I said it's one of our two basic and, and most important principles, and Trent uh, agreed that it was a, a, an important principle, but not the most important one. I, I, I really want to push the point. Uh, you know, this is not me, some disgruntled liberal in 2021, saying this. You know, all the founders said it, too. You know, James Madison himself said that the vital principle of Republican government is the will of the majority. And he was not alone in saying that. Majority rule is the most important Value And that's because it is the only rule that treats all votes as equal. Any other rule is going to, by definition, treat some votes as worth more than other votes. So I really want to emphasize that. And and we know majority rule is important. We know it in our heart. That's why Donald Trump tweeted that the Electoral College is a disaster for democracy. Nobody thinks it's fair to win more votes and yet lose an election. It's just not how it works. And it's not how we run any other election. Uh, The other point he made had to do with the issue of federalism. This is uh, still on the theory. Um, You know, this importance of having a two-tier system of government where we have uh, power in states and then the power at the federal level. I agree, federalism is a a crucial component of the American system of government and it brings us lots of benefits and, and it has, you know, many downstream effects that are positive. Federalism is very well protected in American government. We have a Senate in which the states are all represented equally no matter their size. That is a huge benefit to the states. We have a House of Representatives where every state has uh, members of Congress who represent them. We have governors who are elected by their uh, citizens of their state. We have uh, uh, state lawmakers who are elected uh, in their districts. Um, We have one national office and that is the president of the United States, and my argument is, and I'm not the first one to make it, is that that office should be elected uh, by all the people together equally, no matter where they live. That is the essence of a republican system of government. It is the essence of a representative democracy to choose your leaders by majority rule. This is not you know, direct democracy, pure democracy, mob rule, whatever the terms, Trent didn't use those terms, but we hear them very often in, uh, you know, attacks on the popular vote. Those systems are ones in which people are actually voting directly on the laws, deciding the laws that affect them. This is about electing our leaders who will then pass those laws and enforce them. And in that system, there is just no compelling case for any way to do it other than majority rule. Now, just briefly to touch on uh, Trent's comments about what the Electoral College does today, I have to uh, disagree on a number of these points. Um, first, uh, he, he mentioned that the Electoral College contains problems within a state. Um, so it kind of cordons off um, uh, any issues that might occur in a state. And he, and he actually said it, like, it, uh, Florida's problems are contained in Florida. And I think Florida is actually a great example for the opposite point, which is that a single state's problems can actually affect the whole country. Let's go back to the election of 2000. Remember this, on election night in 2000, we actually knew who had won the most votes in the country that night, Al Gore had won the most votes. He'd won about half a million more votes. What made us sit around for 36 days without a new president was the Electoral College, and specifically the dispute in Florida, over a few hundred votes, which took place, as we know, in a very tumultuous and contested uh, series of of court cases that ended up in the Supreme Court and and ended up being decided by the Supreme Court in December of, of that year. If we weren't waiting on Florida, we would have known who the president was. So Florida's problem far from being isolated to Florida actually affected the entire country and kept us from knowing who our next president was. This is sort of related to another point he made about security where he said, you know, you know, we're you know it's it because elections happen at that local level uh it, you know it's harder to uh, attack the system in the way in a way it would be if it were all happening at the federal level i agree with him about that but because we have this system of state winner take all rules and because there's only a few of these battleground states that actually decide the election that's actually extremely easy to uh, security breach uh, to happen. So, for example, take what just happened in this past election in 2020. Um, Georgia was a, a few thousand votes separated the candidates. Arizona, a few thousand votes to separate the candidates. If you were a malicious actor, whether from Russia or from somewhere you know in America, and you and you had the means to manipulate uh, a vote outcome somewhere, would you? aim to try to change the 7 million vote lead that Joe Biden won all over the country among 160 million American voters? Or would you go for a few thousand in Georgia in a few very clear precincts, or a few thousand in Maricopa County in Arizona in a few very clear precincts? I think the answer is is really straightforward. And the final point I'll make is that this argument that the electoral college as it operates today forces the candidates and the president to appeal to Americans everywhere is just belied by the facts presidents and candidates pay pay undue attention to these very small regions of very few swing states in the country that is how it works because that's how you win it's actually a very adaptive response to what i think is a, a, a deeply cor- corrosive and distorting system and What in fact would happen if you had a popular vote is candidates would need to gain uh, votes everywhere, so they focus everywhere. They don't focus on just the cities, which I think is a very common idea that somehow the whole country is ruled by New York and California. There aren't anywhere near enough people in New York and California to decide elections or to control the outcome. In fact, voters everywhere decide, and they decide based on whom they support, not where they live. Find me one person who votes for the Democrat or the Republican because of the state they live in. People don't vote based on the state they live in, they vote based on whom they support. And that has been true since 1796, the first year we had a truly contested presidential election. So all of that said, I just think there's To me, there's just no question that the the popular vote is the best way to vindicate our principles of majority rule and political equality, and to have a truly representative democracy in America.
0: Thank you very much, gentlemen. I'm going to turn it over to my class. Anyone with a question here in the class? I know we have a few members of the class watching online.
5: Okay, here we are. Hi, I'm Zef Cernkovich. Um, This question's for Jesse. Uh, could you explain further the distinction between the kind of uh, the issues that you see with the electoral college and the issues that you see with the winner take all rule because i'm just I'm just trying to process how perhaps if the winner take all rule was eliminated or revised in in whatever way that maybe the, these other issues with the Electoral College as a whole would be more or less resolved?
3: That's a, that's a great question, and I actually think um, Trent and I, we've, we've spoken before on this, and I think there is some room for uh, uh, overlap here, um, and I'm glad you highlighted that. So the Electoral College that exists in the Constitution is actually really bare bones. Uh, it, it lays out how many electors each state gets, right? And, and we know that that is equal to its representation in Congress, its number of representatives, plus its two senators. And then it has these other provisions for how to deal with it if, there, you know, if there's no uh, winner of the a majority winner in the, in the electoral college. But really beyond that, it's all up to the states. The states decide these critical questions that we think of as inherent to the Electoral College, but in fact are just the product of state laws. So that winner take all rule is one of them. And there's another, which I didn't even mention, which is that you and I and Trent and the rest of us here as regular American citizens actually get to vote for our electors. There is nothing in the Constitution that gives us that right. Justice Antonin Scalia and Bush v. Gore made that point. States decide whether we get to play any role at all in choosing the president. And as we just saw in November with the effort of former President Trump and some of his allies, state lawmakers could take that right back and say, we don't care what you say. We're going to choose the the person we want for president. They have the absolute constitutional authority to do that. They don't have the authority to do it after the election. But certainly between now and 2024, I would not be surprised if you saw some states try to do that. So when you realize how much of the system that we call the electoral college is actually the just an artifact of state-based laws you realize there actually is a lot of room for changing the system even without abolishing it from the constitution. Now as Trent said, you know, this should happen at a constitutional level. In one sense I actually agree with him there. I actually I would prefer it. <laughs> it would be a uh, for me, anyway, from where I' come from politically and, and sort of theoretically, it would be cleaner to have it done at the constitutional level. I also recognize that um, you know constitutional amendments are just uh, right now for, for for partisan reasons and for political reasons are, are extremely difficult to pass, more difficult than I think they should be um, and and certainly I think more difficult than the framers expected them to be. so what can you do? You can use that winner take all system which you know Trent described it as sort of uh, the national popular vote compact that I was talking about as being a kind of subversion of the electoral college. But I don't really see it as any different from the system that we have now which is in effect a national uh, compact among the states to award their electors on the state winner take all rule. You know, they didn't agree to it and sign their sign, sign on the dotted line. But they're all doing it because it's in their interest to do it. And it it would not be in their interest to switch to another system while other states kept that rule. So part of what this idea of the National Popular Vote Compact is, and I think there's reasonable people can disagree on whether it's the best way to get to a popular vote, but the way that it works is to change that winner-take-all rule to switch it from the state level to the national level. The states that are doing it are counting everybody's votes. They think everybody's votes should matter in the presidential election. And I think that's really the essence of the issue now, whether you did it that way, or say by changing to a proportional system, which I think has a lot of problems, uh, proportional by which I mean, um, states would award their electors uh, proportionally based on what the vote in the state was rather than winner take all hundred to zero. um, That in some ways, could get us closer to a true representation of Americans' political views. Uh, It has other problems, but I won't go into them right here. You can read my book for that, Uh, but I'll stop there. And I I hope that I've at least started to address your question.
4: If I could just chime in just very briefly, I I think Jesse's right that he and I agree probably on on a few pieces there. Uh, I mean, one, one solution that often comes up is the congressional district method that Maine and Nebraska do use, right? I mean, states don't have to use winner take- all. Maine and Nebraska don't do that. Um, and if you if you could ever find a way to reduce the impact of gerrymandering, um, one of the ideas that I think is most interesting is just allowing the the size of the House of Representatives to uh, to grow by quite a bit and and you know become a little bit more representative that way, uh, you could, you know, you put those two things together and, and you would ameliorate some, not all, of, of uh, Jesse's concerns with the electoral college system. And yet you would still address my concerns about having votes being uh, uh, being tabulated across state lines in such a way that you you really have to have some kind of federal control or else you probably wind up with a big mess.
3: By the way, I'm a huge fan of expanding the House of Representatives. I've written about it and uh, we're to- we're in total agreement that that's something that's much easier to do than uh, any changes to the Electoral College. Yeah.
5: Hi, thank you very much for uh, speaking to us today. I'm Sean Tehan, uh, I'm a junior in the class. And my question is for Mr. Weigman. Um, how do you answer the uh, the idea that the national uh, popular votes state uh, compact is uh, unconstitutional because uh article 1 section 10 says uh the states shall not enter into agreements with one another without the consent of congress
3: so well for so two answers to that first of all um i know that uh that the people who are running the compact uh, uh which is a a group of both liberals and conservatives who to t- don't agree on much, but they agree on this one issue, are actually working to obtain consent in Congress for the compact. That said, uh, you know, more than 130 years of Supreme Court opinions has made it very clear that not all interstate compacts require the consent of Congress. Which kinds do? The kinds that infringe in some way on federal authority or federal sovereignty, the sovereignty of the federal government, the, the power of the federal government. Now, as we've been talking about here for several minutes, the federal government plays no role in states' decisions of how to award their electors. That is a purely state decision. So there is no impingement on on any element of federal sovereignty uh, by changing the way that they award those electors. And therefore, there is no requirement under the the relevant Supreme Court jurisprudence to obtain congressional consent. Um, that's That's the sort of thumbnail answer to your question. I I have no doubt this would be litigated if the uh, compact were to come into effect with by getting 270 electoral votes to sign on. Um, I know it's one of the main challenges, but to me, uh, and I'm not saying that I'm certain about how it would come out. I think, you know, the, the makeup of the Supreme Court determines everything. So, um, you know, we right now have an extremely conservative court and I wouldn't be surprised if that played a role in how this, in how that issue were decided. But I'm, I'm telling you, based on 130 years of Supreme Court jurisprudence, I don't think there's any question that uh, it, it, it's the type of compact, the type of agreement among states that doesn't impinge on federal sovereignty and thus doesn't require consent. Uh,
5: and then I had a second, uh, quick question. So. Uh... Chesterton kind of always laid out that the burden of proof is on the reformer to get rid of an institution. And so I guess my two questions derive from that uh, to Mr. Wagman, what is the purpose of the Electoral College? And why do we no longer need that purpose served?
3: It's interesting. And I would like to hear from Trent on that, too. It's it's a fair challenge. Um, It's also a little unfair in that the Constitution, you know, you know, you, you dance with who brung you, right? Like, th- this is the system that we uh, have been bequeathed by people who had a lot of vision and a lot of brilliance and a lot of foresight, but who also had a lot of flaws and who made a lot of big mistakes, uh, one of which, slavery. We actually fought a war over that, you know, more than 700,000 people died in in order to eliminate it. Um, you know, there's a lot of things about the original constitution that were not right morally or politically, and they've been changed, um, so you know, um, the burden, I guess, was on (laughs) abolitionists of (laughs) slavery to make their case that that reform was necessary, but it was clearly in the eyes of history the morally right thing to do. I think, you know, I think the reason that um, I can meet that burden and that, that advocates of a popular vote can meet that burden is because we can all see with our own eyes just how distorting of the American political landscape the current system is. So, whether you want to advocate for a straight up constitutional amendment or for some sort of other measure uh, uh, like the popular vote compact or, as Trent said, the congressional district allocation, I think we have to recognize that there's actually a lot more flexibility built into the system now uh, than we think. So it's not a simple debate between electoral college and popular vote. The electoral college is sort of a framework for a lot of different things that could happen and, What ended up happening was this choice among the states to go to that winner take all rule. It's certainly not the only possible way to choose a president. And I think we have plenty of evidence that it's uh, definitely uh, not the best.
4: I mean, I I will chime in on that. You know, the, the original purpose of the Electoral College, which I think, you know, sometimes people find surprising because because they don't necessarily know the context was to to Make sure that the president was independent of Congress, because the default, uh, the the original rough draft of the Constitution called the Virginia Plan, would have had essentially a parliamentary system where Congress would have elected the president. They talked about well, maybe you have governors or some subset of Congress elect the president. Um, they the founders wanted a they wanted a multi-step system to select the president. Um, some of that, a lot of that was about you know, hoping that they could find people who were more like George Washington than like Aaron Burr,, uh, you know, to, to put it colloquially. Uh, and, uh, and, and yet they didn't want the president to be beholden to some other group of office holders. And so if you think about the electoral college, it's sort of like a pop-up Congress, right? I mean, it, it, I mean it is, right? The math is based on the House and the Senate within you know, the, the, the number of, of senators and house members from each state, um, except they can't be federal officials. They come into being um, just to choose the president and then they go away and they're, they're gone, never to be heard from again. Um, and so, you know, it, it, really, it really was thought of, I think at the beginning as being an alternative to congressional selection uh, to make sure that the president was independent. A, a lot of the other things that, that you know, I see as benefits uh, really developed later as the system kind of fell into place, because Jesse's right. I mean, a lot of the power was delegated to the states. And there was a lot of experimentation, uh, especially in the early, you know, the late 18th, early 19th century with how states were going to uh, choose their presidential electors.
3: And I'll just add to that. Uh, yes, Trent's right. You know, keeping that, keeping it out of Congress was was a major concern for many of the delegates. Another one was this concern of um, Am- the American people not really knowing enough about national political uh, candidates because there was no TV, there was no radio, there was very poor transportation networks, so people didn't go very far from their home. There was an idea that you had this intermediary body of of more uh, of men, of course, only men who were um, educated and understood the politics at the national level to make a wise decision. Of course, You know, first of all, that concept fell apart within 10 years when national political parties developed and people became partisans, literally, you know, for either John Adams or Thomas Jefferson in 1796. And of course, today we know far more than we could ever want to know (laughs) about our candidates. So that really isn't the issue. And then, of course, there's the factor of slavery. Um, I don't think it's so simple as to say we have the electoral college because of slavery. That's an oversimplification. Nevertheless, you know, look at the, 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 the language of the framers at the Constitutional Convention, this comes up again and again. James Madison himself says in a debate on July 17th, he says, I would prefer a, po- a direct popular vote. He was supporting the the idea of James Wilson, who was perhaps the most uh, influential and respected framer at the convention who had been promoting a popular vote for president from the very start of the convention. Uh, and he wasn't getting a lot of buy-in <laughs> for, for many reasons. And one of those reasons, as James Madison acknowledges, is he says, I, would, I think it would be best to have a popular vote for president. But he says, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, the South isn't going to go for it on the score of the negroes that's what he says on the score of the negroes you know he's recognizing that in a popular vote the south suddenly loses influence because half of their population can't vote they're enslaved they have no rights at all so you know while in the end the adoption of the electoral college was done for several reasons and that trent named one of them and we've discussed a couple others that role of slavery was central to every Major compromise that was made at the convention in 1787, and we can't we can't take it out of the picture. It is central to how everything has developed since.
5: Thank you.
0: Okay, gentlemen, we have a bit of a line here of students in about 15 minutes, so I'm going to encourage you to try to be relatively brief in your answer. Uh, Abraham.
5: Hello, my name is Abraham Figueroa. My question is for Mr. Weigman. So. The Founding Fathers had a huge concern for the ignorance of the electorate, which you briefly touched on. But whenever we look towards scallop polls just a few years ago, only 34% of Americans know the three branches of government, less than a quarter know that uh, their own senators, less than half know that they have two senators. So the ignorance of the electorate is still a very present issue in modern times. And the Founding Fathers said that that led uh, to the electorate being susceptible to fits of of passion and prejudice, so how does the popular vote it safeguard against that ignorance of the electorate?
3: How does the electoral college safeguard against it <laughs> it's It's the same people voting uh you know it, it look i mean when it comes to the ignorance of the electorate i agree american it's 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 frightening how little Americans know about their government to me, that is not an argument uh for battleground states. Um, you know, Thomas Jefferson said, if, if the people are not well educated enough, the answer isn't to take the vote away from them, it's to educate them better. And, you know, that's, uh, that's my position. I, I think people do need to know more about their government. They do need to understand better. But the answer is not to take away their vote.
5: Just a quick follow-up question. Um, you stated that the Founding Fathers admitted the guilt or um, the failures of the Electoral College. But if, to my understanding, Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 68 actually mentioned how it was one of the... Um, if not perfect, then a very excellent system to allow uh, the fits of passion and prejudice to be safeguarded with individuals who had more knowledge of the um,
3: current political systems. He did write that. The, the Federalist Papers are a bit of propaganda to sell the constitution to skeptical uh, citizens of the states. Um, Alexander Hamilton knew as well as anybody that the system they designed was a last minute jerry-rigged improvisation. Uh, and in fact, he writes a letter right around the same time as he was writing that Federalist Paper 68, he writes a letter to James Wilson, one of the other founders, in which he says, essentially, this system is is a mess and it's gonna blow up in our faces. And he already, he was talking at that time before even the first election about how to manipulate the Electoral College in order to ensure that George Washington became president. I have the letter in my book, you can read it, but he's basically saying, let's why don't we throw away a few electors in a few states in order to ensure that George Washington uh, is president? So. You know, yes, Hamilton wrote that uh, in the Federalist papers. there's a lot in the Federalist papers that's just basically salesmanship. Um, but when you actually look at how the founders responded in the years after uh, the founding, in the years after ratification of the Constitution to the way that the actual electoral college played out in practice, you see that overwhelmingly they were extremely concerned and they they said this isn't what we this isn't the system that we designed
4: and H- Hamilton was Hamilton was concerned about what was solved by the 12th amendment which was that the runner-up became vice president and very quickly that you know it, it was clear that that was not really uh, a, a system that was going to produce good and effective government at the at the executive level i mean hamilton's statement in federalist 68 is is a reflection of the political reality around the electoral college in the in the debates for ratification which was even the anti-federalists for the most part looked at the Electoral College and said, yeah, looks like a pretty good system, right? Now, I mean, I, I think that you have to counterbalance that with the fact that nobody was quite sure how it would work because it really was something uh, you know, in many ways very new and it, it put power in the hands of the states. And so you had to wait and see what the states would do. Um, but it, it was true that, I mean, even people who were against ratifying the constitution uh, with just a couple exceptions, looked at the Electoral College and said, yeah, we, we think that's a good system, right? And that's basically what Madison, uh, or excuse me, what, what Hamilton writes there. Um, you know, I think a lot, of the, a lot of the criticisms from the founding generation were, were about how the states use the Electoral College, how their political opponents uh, used the, or benefited from the Electoral College. Uh, but you really don't see that that much agitation for a direct popular election. And to speak to something that Jesse said earlier, when you do have those debates come up in the in the 18 teens in Congress, um, the uh, the defenders of the Electoral College were were as far as counting the votes evenly scattered between the North and the South. So the idea that it was you know it was the slave power that was keeping the Electoral College in effect uh, against a bunch of you know enlightened majoritarians uh, just isn't borne out by the Congressional Record.
5: Thank you for your time.
4: Thanks.
6: Hello, I'm uh, Kelly Conan. I'm a senior here at Notre Dame and going to law school next year. So this is just really awesome to see just a very respectful debate. Um, Yeah, really inspiring to be on both different ends of a spectrum, but still really have a lot of respect. So thank you for that. I was really interested that you both claimed that your approaches to the Electoral College were both more democratic. Um, I was really interested that you both, you know, like responded to each other. And when you mentioned that, or when Trent mentioned that the elections are more inclusive with the electoral college because they recognize minorities, um, Whiteman responded that the cities wouldn't be populous enough in order to really have things be led by the cities. That was your rebuttal. And Trent, I was wondering what your response is to Whiteman, on the other hand, his comment that the... um, electoral college erases votes of hundred million Americans just because of where they live so what is your flip side to that argument
4: yeah that's a great that's a great question thank you uh, I, you know the, the reality in any electoral system is that somebody wins and somebody loses and it's it, I mean frankly it's just never made a lot of sense to me when opponents of the electoral college say that if you vote for the candidate who doesn't win your state you're not represented I mean if If I vote for the candidate for U.S. Senate uh, who loses my state, right? I mean, my vote was counted. My my vote was cast. My vote was counted. Uh, I voted for the candidate who lost. Um, Now, my candidate may belong to um, the political party that ends up in control of the U.S. Senate. And um, And so I may be happy about the outcome nationwide, but unhappy about the outcome in my state you know, and I say this having lived in, I, I now live in one of the reddest states in the country. I used to live in California and in Washington state. So a couple of the, the blue states, I mean, you know, I voted for winners, I have voted for losers. Um, you know, I, I just don't, I just don't think it's true to say that you're disenfranchised when you vote for somebody who lost. And if it is, I mean, it works that way in, in again, in any districted system of elections, whether it's city council, state legislature, U.S. House, U.S. Senate, Um, you know, and, and it's, you know, it's similar with swing states too, right? There are some, there are some states where, you know, everybody's biting their nails over who's going to win the U S Senate seat. And the, the whole control of the United States Senate may turn on that. And there are states like Oklahoma, where it's hard for the Democrats, you know, in in at least this political era to find somebody to run, um, which I think is, you know, it's not, I, I wish, I wish Oklahoma was a more competitive state. I wish California was a more competitive state. Um, but, you know, I don't think Republicans in California or Democrats in Oklahoma are, are disenfranchised. They're, they're unhappy.
3: You know, let me just add to that. Trent's right. Uh, in any uh, first-past-the-post fo- system like we have in this country, there's a winner and there's a loser. Um, uh, I, I, I think the problem here that I have and that I was trying to express through that, what I said and what you quoted, uh, was that. In all of those elections, Trent's talking about, the candidate being chosen is actually responsible for the jurisdiction that elects him or her. In the presidential election, that's not the case. The president isn't the president of California or the president of Arizona or the president of Wyoming. The president is the president of the United States. And so that the president should be chosen by the United States, not by blocks that even before the actual election, eliminate large numbers of voters. Just take California as an example. More than 6 million people in California voted for Donald Trump, okay? But that's essentially an advisory vote because in December of 2020, All 55 of California's electors voted for Joe Biden. It was as though those 6 million people didn't exist. And that's the real vote for president. So if you're erasing people before the actual vote happens, to me, that is a sense of a a form of disenfranchisement.
6: Thank you so much.
7: Hi, my name is Sierra and I, my question is going to be kind of a follow up um, to the previous question. Um, and it's more directed to Mr. England. Um, I guess my question was about the democratic like ideals of America. And according to Larry Diamond, um, a political scientist, he says that there are four main ideals that are necessary to be a democracy. So I'm going to be talking about two of them. First, it says that a political system It needs to be a political system with free and fair elections. So I wanted to ask one, is with an electoral college, do we have free and fair elections? Which you kind of answered beforehand, Um, but I guess I wanted to push it a little bit farther. And then second, I wanted to also talk about active participation and how an elective, an electoral college affects active participation and creates pessimism within voters of the idea of my vote doesn't count, so I won't count at all. So these are two ideals that Larry Diamond says are necessary for a democracy. However, I feel like, oh, well, I guess it's a question. Um, does the Electoral College um, affect these ideals? And if they do, then is, um, is America an actual, demar- uh, an actual democracy um, or does the Electoral College um, make it harder to call America a democracy?
4: Well, I I think that in the the way that we use the term democracy today, there's no question that a two-step democratic system is a democratic system, right? I mean, as I said, everybody talks about India being a democracy, Germany being a democracy, Canada being a democracy, and all of those countries have systems where um, not only are they breaking up the vote by geography, not only is, is, you know, a certain part of their electoral system a two-step democratic process, but But literally within those systems, you can have a candidate who does not receive the most popular votes or their party does not receive the most popular votes. And that candidate can go on to be chancellor or to be a prime minister, or in our case, to be president. So, um, I mean, unless we want to define democracy in purely majoritarian terms um, and say that, uh, that a democratic system is only about the, and really even majoritarianism is, is sort of Uh, a misnomer, because what we're typically talking about is some sort of plurality system. Uh, You know, I mentioned France, right, where you have someone who 23 percent of the people uh, preferred Emmanuel Macron in the, the first round election when there were a lot of candidates. Right. And he becomes prime minister. People say, oh, well, that's a directly democratic system. Well, a lot of French people don't don't believe that it is right. They don't feel that way. And, you know, there are certain kinds of election analysis you can do looking at the the outcome and and sort of measuring it against uh, the sentiments of the of the people in a particular jurisdiction that show that the Electoral College is often more democratic than a than a French two step election system. Right. And so I mean, I think I I think the the challenge is right. We want things that conflict. um, Right. We want to protect minority rights, and yet we want the majority to rule, but we don't really want the majority to rule if the majority wants to create a state church or license you know, license editorial writers in the New York Times, right? Uh, you know, we have a first amendment that is anti-majoritarian. It is anti-democratic, right? The whole bill of rights is anti-democratic. Uh, so we have, we have all these different values, and I think the electoral college upholds the best of these, right? Uh, the power is in the hands of the people in every single state, um, but we do, we do have a, a system that works um, to force both the parties, to force the candidates um, to care about a lot of voters in a lot of different geographic situations all across our country. That's democratic, right? And uh, you, know, you, you mentioned participation, um, obviously, you know, in, in the states where a campaign is the most hotly contested, that tends to drive up uh, turnout a little bit. But you also see a lot of states, especially in the Northeast, where even if they're very safe states, they still have very high turnout uh, because culture's at play. So I think, you know, uh, there, there are a lot of variables that go into political participation. I don't think the Electoral College hurts it. It certainly gives it a boost in in places that tend to be competitive. Same thing with competitive Senate races or congressional races or gubernatorial races, right? more competitive an election is, uh, the more the voters tend to be educated and and engaged and and go out and vote.
3: And I just speak briefly to the issue of participation? I'm glad you brought it up. Thank you. And I should have brought it up earlier. Uh, In the last chapter of my book, I speak to campaign managers of uh, both Republican and Democratic uh, presidential campaigns for the last 25 years. And I said to them, how would you run a national popular vote campaign? And what would, you know, what would happen as a result of it? And one of the things that they all said was participation goes up. And it's, as Trent said, when people, you know, when it's competitive, people are more likely to vote. And you actually do see that. And he's right that that um, turnout varies for, for a number of reasons. But Uh, In fact, on average, turnout in battleground states is significantly higher than turnout in non-battleground states. And if you had the entire country, everybody knowing that their vote mattered, you, I, you would see turnout that, that jumped dramatically in the, in the sort of potentially tens of millions of people uh, uh, than from what it is today. And that's because, as you say, when people think their vote doesn't matter, which is true, it doesn't in a place like California or New York, you know, I know my vote has never counted where I've lived. Um, they're, mu- they're less likely to go out and vote. It's, it's pretty simple.
0: I'm afraid we're out of time. We had some more student questions and I know more questions online, Uh, but our time is up. I wanna thank Mr. Wegman and Mr. England and of course our friends at Montpelier for uh, co-sponsoring our event. Thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, Gentlemen, a wonderful debate. Thank you very much.
7: Thank Thank you.